Uh, well, hey, welcome to Grace. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you guys are here. Uh, we are taking a break for the next four weeks from the book of Mark to talk through the vision of Grace Church, the future hopes and dreams that we have. Over the last nine months, we've been praying and scheming and meeting and word, you know, trying to find the right words and trying to hear from the Lord about where he is leading us as a church. And so we are excited to have come to some conclusions and we're excited to share those with us uh, over the next four weeks. So I hope you stick it out and you uh, get excited about where God is leading us. So as we get this going, I wanted to share one of my favorite quotes. Uh, no one knows who said this quote. So if you want to Google this later and tell me who actually said this quote, there's great debate on the internet about where this comes from. But, but here's the quote. It, it says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and, and work. And don't you know, delegate responsibility, but rather teach the people to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So if you want to build a ship, don't grab a bunch of people, don't delegate tasks, don't give a bunch of work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So uh, in layman's terms, how I translate that, that quote is, uh, create a vision that everyone longs to see that it would come to fruition. Like, don't just say, we're going to build a boat, let's build a boat, everybody grab some wood, we're going to build a boat. No, like, point at the sea and say, like, let's get out there. And in order to get out there, we have to do this stuff, but all of us long to see this vision come to fruition together. That's what we want to see. And so we felt that it was fitting to let Lois Stalo, the matriarch of Grace Church, remind us of the story we find ourselves in. She's been here the longest, as far as we could tell. If anybody's been here longer, you can come after service and say, I got beef with that video. I've been here. <laughs> you and Lois can duel it out. But, that, <laughs> but we recognize that God has been faithful, that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And any time in the Old Testament or really throughout the history of God and his people, any time they're about to move into a new season, into a new vision, the prophets, the priests, they come along and they say the same thing every time. They say, remember, remember what God has done. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember who God is. Remember God's character. As we go into this new place, don't you dare forget what I have accomplished before you get there. And so we wanted to start there and say, okay, Lord, we want to remember for the last 110 years, you've been doing something in this people to be good news to this city. We, we, that is not lost on us. So whether you came here for the first time today or you've been here for a while, you are entering into a story of God's faithfulness. And he's continuing to be faithful. And as we look into the future, we are hopeful and we are confident that we can rely on his faithfulness to accomplish the vision that is in front of us. So whether you know it or not, today we are gathered around a vision. Your pastors and elders have been captivated by a vision, and we can't unsee this vision. Because we believe that if we as people will get this vision, then it will infuse purpose into our life. It will infuse meaning into our days. And if we miss this vision, then we can miss everything that is meaningful in this world. The truth is our church will rise and fall based on how adequately we see the vision in front of us. So that begs the question, what is, what is this vision that's so significant, so important that we can't miss it, or the meaning of our lives are attached to this? What is this vision? Well, I want us to look at a story in the Old Testament that gives us a picture of vision, and my prayer is that we would come to the same conclusions that the prophet came to after this experience. So if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Isaiah chapter 6? 
we're going to look at a vision that's going to inform the future of our church and the future of our lives. So in Isaiah chapter 6, you've got the prophet Isaiah for five chapters. He has been leading and, and speaking for God. This is 800 years before Christ. Isaiah has been called by God to speak to a rebellious people that are trusting in their own strength. God uses prophets to realign his people. He uses prophets to tell his people to remember his faithfulness. In Isaiah chapter 6, there's an encounter that happens. There's a vision that happens that we need to get our minds around. So in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. We're going to stop right there. We'll, we'll get back to the story. But this is 800 years B.C. The king Uzziah has died, and that is a placeholder of this moment. Uzziah was a king for 52 years. He became king when he was 16 years old. That's like a youth kid becoming king. Can you imagine? It'd be like cotton candy for all, video games for all. He's king when he's 16 years old. Insane. 52 years. All their, like a whole generation had only known King Uzziah as the king, this is similar to the queen passing away. Like, this is a national moment that no one will forget. And it's in that moment that Isaiah gets a vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, the fear was real. The national grief was heavy. The one that had been in control was no longer in, on the throne. And in that context, Isaiah sees a vision of God. And where is God in this vision? He's high and exalted. What does that mean? It means God is alive and well. He, he is not connected to time and space like Uzziah is. He's doing well. God is alive. He's always been alive. He always will be alive. He, he is the definition of life. God was the living God when the universe came into existence. He was the living God when Frederick Nietzsche said that God is dead. Do you remember that? If you're old enough to remember that. I only read about it. Um, in 1966, another guy named Thomas Alter came along and proclaimed that God is dead. Then a little while later, Time Magazine put on the cover of their magazine, God is dead. Well, Nietzsche died in 1900, and Thomas Alter died in 2018. And there are 8 billion people on the planet right now, and in 120 years, there will be 8 billion new people. And God will be alive. God is alive. That's, that's the picture. He's alive and he's well. What's he doing? This, this living God, what is he doing? He's seated on a throne. What does that mean? It means he's ruling and reigning and authoritative. He's not plowing a field. He's not working a spreadsheet. He's not filling out reports. He's not loading up a truck. He's not stressed out. He's not in a hurry. He's seated on a throne. All is at peace and all is under his control. control. The throne is the picture of his right to rule the world, the authority that he has over the world. This is just happening. This is reality. This is clearly seen that he's the name above all names, the throne above all thrones, and he is exalted above all things. 
Every few years, NASA like creates a new telescope that goes out into the solar system and brings back all these pictures. And the great uh, reveal at the end is the smartest people currently in the world. They're great. Like their final, uh, like official responses. We have no idea what's going on out there. That's the official response of the smartest people we got. We are terrified and we don't know. Read about it. And Isaiah sees that God is alive and he's ruling and he's reigning. And the, the, the vision says the train of his robe fills the temple. What, what does that mean? It means that he's limitless in his power. He's limitless in his scope. He's limitless in his reign. In the Old Testament, uh, the length of your train meant the length of your reign. So it's like a rhyme, like long train, long reign, short train, short reign. Long train, long reign, short train, short train. You got it? You're going to be saying that later at lunch. Sounds like a rap song. Long train, long... Okay, I'll stop. But this idea is that the, the scope of your leadership was, was signified by the, the length of your train. It showed your power. It showed the scope of your kingdom. And in the, the Hebrew language, some translations don't even say train of his robe. It says the fringes of his robe. The fringes of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah sees and he's like, I couldn't even see in there. There was just robe everywhere. Everywhere I looked, all I saw was robe. This God is limitless in his power. He has no match. He has no rival. The reign of his kingdom knows no end. And then there's angels surrounding this God, singing holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? It means he's revered. He's set apart. He's glorious. There's nothing like him. The primary way the Old Testament talks about what is God like, it says, there's no one like him. Tell us about God. There's no one like him. Well, give me another word about God. Oh, there's no one like him. That's the best way I could describe him to you. Nothing like him. There's no one like him. He's set apart. He's glorious and he's holy. And I know Valentine's Day has radically affected our view of angels. But I need us for a moment to not think chubby guy in underwear shooting arrows at loved ones. That's not what I'm talking about. Terrifying creatures. They're in the throne room of God. These, these type of creatures, the seraphim, are mentioned nowhere else in the whole Bible. Theologian R.C. Sproul says every creature is created for their environment, and they're created for that purpose alone. And the grandeur of this scene is that you have angels that were created just to show the glory and the reverence of God. It's overwhelming. And here's what's interesting is that Isaiah knew God. He'd been a prophet for five chapters. He knew God. But, but this view of God, this moment in God's presence, Isaiah understands something. And this understanding changes the remainder of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah understands that up until this moment, his vision of God was woefully inadequate. His vision of God was far too small. His picture of what God was like was in no way capable of grasping the reality of what God is like. This is what you see if you're familiar with the Old Testament in the book of Job. For like 38 chapters, there's this discourse. And then chapter 38, God speaks. Chapter 39, God speaks. Chapter 40, God speaks. And then in chapter 40, Job tears his clothes, throws ashes on himself and said, I spoke once, I will not speak again. I didn't know you like I thought I knew you. Students, if you want to be challenged, go read Job 38, 39, and 40. God throws some shade at Job like you've never seen before. He'll ask Job stuff like, have you ever been to the storehouse where I keep the snow? <laughs> no, you haven't, Job. You haven't. Have you ever called down lightning bolts, Job? No. It, 
it's great. Read it later. Some great insults, <laughs> loving insults from God. This is what we see in the book of Mark when Jesus brings the miraculous catch of fish. What does Peter do? He just falls at Jesus' feet and he says, get away from me. I'm a sinner. My view of you was too small. I didn't quite understand who you were. And listen, listen, Grace Church, uh, maybe our biggest issue as a church and maybe our biggest issue as individual believers is that our view of God is woefully inadequate. What if our view of God is so small? What, what, what if we need to raise our expectations with God? What if we need to raise our vision of God? And what if this whole vision series is just us saying, God, could we get a glimpse of who you are? God, would you help pick our eyes up to see who you are? Because when Isaiah entered into the throne room of God, he was not struggling with self-image. He was not struggling with, with you know, being cool in Israel. He's the new prophet. He's young. He probably had a big following. He probably wasn't lacking self-esteem. He's probably doing well. He likes being a, a prophet. This is probably going well for him. But when he enters into the throne room of God and sees this vision, Verse 5, the first thing Isaiah says after seeing this vision is, whoa, 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 whoa. That's my translation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Verse 5, woe to me, I cried. Woe is me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm dead. It's over. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Something happens here that transforms Isaiah. Isaiah saw the Lord for the first time, and in so doing, Isaiah saw himself for the first time. One more time. Isaiah saw the Lord for the first time, and in so doing, he saw himself for the first time. Our view of God needs to get bigger because it helps us understand who we are. Isaiah does not go into the presence of God, get a vision of God, and Isaiah doesn't respond to that by saying, wow is me. He doesn't say, wow, is me. He doesn't say, oh, God, it's nice to meet you. I've been meaning to connect with you. you. You exist to bless me. I've been meaning to say thank you for that. You exist to help me. You've made me awesome, God. Wow is me. No, he says, whoa, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. Why? Because in the presence of a holy God, he saw how unclean he was. Unclean is an intentional word. It's a significant word in the Old Testament. It's, it's used over 100 times just in Leviticus 11 through 15. This means the total condition of a person's, uh, a total condition of a person due to their failure to obey God's law. The total condition of a person due to the, their failure to obey God's law is what it means to be unclean. And Isaiah's first words are, woe is me, I'm unclean. I failed to, to live up to you. My lips are unclean. Now, this is interesting because a lot of people think Isaiah was confessing his weakness, like he's ashamed of his weakness. Like, what was me? My lips are unclean. What's, what's interesting is Isaiah, his lips were like his primary gift. He was an incredible communicator. Have you read the book of Isaiah? It's beautiful. His lips are his strength. His communication is his strength. So he's not confessing a weakness in God's presence. He's confessing the best thing he has isn't any good. Pastor Tim Keller says this, he says, the holiness of God, it doesn't make Isaiah ashamed of his weaknesses. The holiness of God makes Isaiah look at his strengths and realize they aren't really strengths at all. 
God's holiness is terrifying because it reveals our strengths are actually our weaknesses. And we're undone. And we say, who can stand before this God? Who has any hope before this God? We have no chance before this holy God. Because the thing that we believe holds our life together, our gifting, our calling, our job, when we stand before a holy God and he holds up a mirror to us, all you will see is the brokenness and inability that you have to accomplish what God has invited you into, which is perfection. So I know many of us would say, yes, sin is a problem in God's presence. But what's crazy here is even our goodness is a problem in God's presence. The Apostle Paul says this in the book of Philippians, even my righteousness is like filthy rags. So if this is the standard, if this is the state of the union, then the question is, who can stand before this God? Who has any chance before this God? This God is too much. Who can be in his presence? So verse 1 through 5, there's a vision of God. Verse 6, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm unclean. And then in verse uh, 7, verse, the, the later part of verse 6, it picks up and it says this. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And while, with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, an Old Testament Jewish person would have understood what's happening here. The coal is taken from the altar. What happens on the altar? The altar is the most significant place in Jewish history. Once a year, you would go to the Day of Atonement, and a priest would come, and they'd put their hands on an animal and kill the animal, and that animal's blood would go on the altar, and then they would burn up the altar, leaving coals behind. Everyone understood what the altar was. That was the place where God covered your sins. That was the place that instead of God killing the people of Israel, he killed an animal in their place. That was the sacrificial system in one word, altar. They all understood what was happening there. When all that was done, there was coals left behind. And so in the story, you have a hot coal being taken from the altar where a lamb had been slain. And then this coal represents the fire of God's judgment that's already been burned. And the coal goes to Isaiah. This is not salvation. He's been a prophet for five chapters. It's not like Isaiah understands God for the first time in terms of salvation. What's happening here is revelation. That that altar where that animal is slain and the coals that are there, that coal comes and touches me in the very place that I confess my uncleanliness. And in, in so doing, God's grace in this moment, you have to catch this, God's grace in that moment for Isaiah, it moved from an intellectual theory to a felt reality. Maybe for the first time in Isaiah's life, he feels it. He doesn't just know it in his head, he knows it in his heart. For the first time, Isaiah understands that God is holy, but he's also loving. And he's willing to pay a price in his love to fulfill his holiness. And this is the moment that Isaiah's eyes fill with tears. Because it's clear that he had no chance to stand before God, and it's clear that God was gracious to him. It was clear what he had been saved from. So this is the moment where Isaiah's like, God, you love me. You're infinitely glorious, you're infinitely holy, you're set apart, there's no one like you. NASA can't explain you, nothing can understand who you are, God. And there's no right I have to be in your presence, but you've been gracious to me. You've moved towards me, you've touched me, and I am forever changed. And the intellectual theory becomes a felt reality, and that changes everything. In this moment, Isaiah goes from being someone who builds ships to someone who loves the ocean. Oh, I've seen what God has done. And his eyes fill with tears. I, 
I think this happens to us. If you're a follower of Jesus, this should happen to you. As I was writing this sermon in a coffee shop, I'm listening to uh, Amazon Music. I don't have Spotify. Don't judge me, people, okay? I'm Amazon Music guy. I'm committed. Probably because it comes free with Amazon Prime, but that's not a part of the sermon. That, so I'm listening to Amazon Music, and I just have some little you know, playlist going, and a Phil, a Phil Wickham song comes on the playlist, and it's like a mashup between two songs. It's a mashup between the song Tremble and the song What a Beautiful Name. And I'm listening to it, and I'm writing, and I'm like to this part of the sermon. And in the, the song, it's like the Holy Spirit was just like with me in the coffee shop. Like the song is like building, and I'm typing faster, and it's building, and I'm typing faster. And in the, the bridge of this song, the, 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 the words are, you have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. And I'm like, it's true. It's true. It's right here in Isaiah 6. It's true. It's, it's happening. That is, that's real. I promise. It, it moves me. And you, you stop typing and you look around and you're having this experience with God in a coffee shop. And this is what it's like to know Jesus, that it's not just intellectual, it's emotional. It's emotional. It moves you. Now, I have a friend in Texas who is a pastor in this church, and anytime they're going to bring on a new staff member, he, he takes part in the interview, and he asks one question. And the question is, when is the last time the gospel moved you to tears? This is one question. And he said, if, if you're going to join the team, and we're going to do life together, and we're going to try to push back darkness together. I want to know that this is a felt reality for you. And, and I'm not saying we have to be overly emotional. I'm just saying in the story of, with Isaiah, something transitions here from just an intellectual theory to a felt reality. And so I, I think this is important for us because let me ask you something. If you're a Christian here or if you're kind of checking this thing out, when you see the holiness of God followed by the sinfulness of man, followed by the grace of God, and that moment overwhelms you, don't you think that that type of action from a holy God towards us, surely that should get a, a better response than simply praying a prayer one time when you were young, and then the remainder of your life really no allegiance to that God who is gracious to you. Surely more than, okay, God, you've been gracious, I know you're holy and I can't stand in your presence, but like, you were gracious to me. Surely that exchange requires more than just attending an event a couple times a week or attending an event once a week and listening to someone talk. Surely that kind of mercy by that kind of God towards that kind of sinner evokes a lot more response. Surely there's a natural outflow of when you've experienced that. And I think that's what happens in Isaiah's story. The holiness of God, followed by the sinfulness of man, followed by the mercy of God, leads to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Then, then, like after all of that stuff happened, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. It's like the Trinity's having a meeting. And Isaiah's off to the side with his lips on fire. And like tears in his eyes because he just thought he was going to die. And then this big scary angel hit, a, hit him in the mouth with a coal. He's just like over there, barely alive. The Trinity has a meeting. And they say, who's going to go for us? Who's going to tell the world of our mercy and our goodness and our holiness and our grace? Who's going to tell the world? And Isaiah overhears this and just chimes in and says, hey, I'm here. What about me? Could I go? <laughs> like, here I am, send 
me, I, I've seen what you've done. I've experienced who you are. I'll go. I'll go. I volunteer as tribute. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't know where they're sending him. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone. He doesn't know the cost it's going to take for where he's going. He doesn't know who else is going to go with him. He doesn't know who's going to pay for it. He doesn't know what will be expected of him. He doesn't seem to care. He just says, I've seen enough. I've experienced enough. Whatever you're asking, whatever you're planning, whatever your strategy, I want in on it. I refuse to sit over here and not participate in what you're doing because I've seen something. So here I am, send me. And this is how it works with God, that you get a glimpse of his glory, followed by a taste of his grace, and that mobilizes you. It mobilizes you. This is the progression. A high view of God gives you a humble view of yourself and an urgent view of mission. A high view of God. Raise our understanding of God. Raise our vision of God. We have a woefully inadequate view of God. A high view of God then helps us have a humble view of ourselves and an urgent view of mission. Listen, Grace Church, a sign that you have met God is that you suddenly become overwhelmed by the people around you that don't know God. A sign that you've met Jesus and been moved by Jesus is that all of a sudden you have a burden for those who don't know Jesus because the people at your job, the people at the coffee shop, the people at the gym, the people in your family, they are no less holy than you are. But they stand. Anyone who's not understood the grace of Christ and come to receive the grace of Christ, stand under God's condemnation. And yet you know the God who loves them. You know the God who's gracious to them because you've seen something. You've seen God love you. And if God can love you, God can love anybody. Amen? Anybody? If God can save a sinner like you, then God can save anybody. If the cross of Christ is sufficient for you, then the cross of Christ is sufficient for everybody. And you've experienced that, and you've been moved by that. And it mobilizes you. What's frustrating to me, uh, I, I've, I went to college, and I minored in missions. I minored in church planning. It was like a part of my degree. I'd study this stuff. And this passage was used all the time. And most people think Isaiah chapter 6 is a scripture reserved for mission trips. You've gone on a mission trip and used this verse. It's a great verse. You probably have, a, if you grew up in the church, you have a coffee cup with Isaiah chapter 6 on it. Right here I'm sending me. Anybody? No, don't raise your hand. You're like, Josh, I'm drinking out of it right now. I'm glad. Yeah. I get it. But listen, this verse is not primarily a mission text. This verse is primarily a vision text. It's a story about a man who sees God. And once he sees God, he's moved by this vision, and then he is sent. So listen, Isaiah doesn't see a vision to plant churches and say, here I am, send me. Isaiah doesn't see a vision to become a house church leader and say, here I am, send me. He didn't see a vision to go to Guatemala like some of us are doing next week and say, here am I, send we. He didn't even see a vision to make disciples and say, here I am, send me. No, Isaiah saw God. He got a vision of God. He got a glimpse of God, a God on his throne, reigning eternally, self-sufficient and glorious, a God that created the world and was on mission to reach the world, and then that God showed him grace, and that God now wants to use Isaiah to extend grace, and this vision freed Isaiah to participate in God's mission, 
So I want to share with you the most important lesson you can learn about ministry and mission based on this picture from Isaiah chapter 6. It's this, that God does not involve us in ministry and mission because he is limited and needs our help. No, God involves us in ministry and mission because we are his children and he loves us. And he wants us to participate with him. He wants us to meet him on the field, to work alongside him, to have stories of his faithfulness on the field. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. To, to invite your children when your children actively work against the mission. Anybody? In Washington, we bought a house that had all these trees. We didn't know. And then all the trees, the leaves fell. It was awful. And one day a year, the city of Pullman would come by and pick up the leaves. And this was like a national holiday in our house. It's like, we got to get the leaves out by leave day, because if we don't, I had to bag up like 100 bags. So you just get them out. And my kids would get excited to come help me, and we'd make a big deal and have hot chocolate, and we'd go do leaves. They were horrible coworkers. <laughs> they actively harmed the mission. Every pile I put together, they ran through it and jumped in it. Yet, it was my joy to invite them to come out and rake leaves with me. It was on me. Dad was going to get the leaves to the, to the curb. That was on me. But it was so fun to participate with my kids. It was so fun to have them out there. And that is what it's like with God. He's going to get his glory to the ends of the earth. But he invites us to participate. And that's freeing and it's moving and it's beautiful. I actually brought a video of like live footage of what it looks like for us to work with God on the mission field. Check, check this out. This is, this is us and God on the mission field. That's, that's what it looks like. And yet, and yet, God says, do you want to grab a shovel and go out there and help me? And that's what it looks like. Isn't that so ridiculous? I know that's ridiculous. But th this, is, this is the beauty of an all-sufficient, all-sovereign God saving us and inviting us to participate. Because when we trust that God is sovereign over all things, it, it changes our view of mission. It changes our prayers. Now, now the prayer, according to Isaiah 6, the prayer isn't, should I go? The prayer is, God, please let me go. God, it seems like this is your strategy. I, I think we've missed this in the church. Um, I, I don't think God's strategy is to give a bunch of people a call to ministry, but rather God's strategy is to give a bunch of people a vision of who he is, and they're so overwhelmed by his grace that they go out and live out a calling because of this vision. That they see something they can't unsee and they're overwhelmed. And so because you have seen him, you will pray for the lost. Because you've seen him, you will serve selflessly, selflessly in the city. Because you've seen him, you will be an evangelist. Because you've seen him, you will live sacrificially in your generosity. Because you love the ocean, you'll build a boat. Because you long for the sea, you'll, you'll find the wood and you'll build the team and you'll build the boats. So this is so important. If, as we go forward into this vision series, our hope is that we see him, that we get a vision of him, because we're going to talk about planting churches, we're going to talk about house churches, but at the end of the day, if you have not seen God, we would not like you to join us in this mission, because it's not helpful 
The last thing we need is a bunch of missionaries without a vision of God propelling them into mission. The last thing we need is a bunch of people who have no vision of God's adequacy in their life actively participating in religious activity. No, that's mercenary work. That's not missionary work. We want to be moved by this. We want this to be a felt reality in our lives. And I I think it happens by seeing again the gospel, by seeing again who God is. So let me say it to you in a principle. When you see the cost of being pulled in, you'll no longer count the cost of being sent out. When you see the cost of being pulled in, and it, it's not just an intellectual theory to you, it's a felt reality. When you see the cost of being pulled in, then you'll no longer count the cost of being sent out. You see this in the disciples, you see this in the early church, and you see this in Isaiah. Because Isaiah's job description We rarely talk about this. We usually stop at Isaiah 6-8 and we print the t-shirts and the cups. But the job description, if you read Isaiah 6-9 and following, he was going to preach for people for 40 years and there would be no change. He would be hated, he'd be rejected, he'd be outcast, he'd be beaten and ultimately sawed in two. If you knew that was the job description, who would say, here I am, pick me? The only way you say yes to that job description is if you've seen the cost of being pulled in. When you see the cost of being pulled in, then that's the only way you say yes to the cost of being sent out. Isaiah saw something he couldn't unsee and therefore was willing to be sent out because of how much it happened for him to be pulled in. And that is what we need as a church. God's strategy to reach the world is the church. That's the strategy. That's the design. It's the church. And right now there are two billion people in the world who still haven't even heard the name of Jesus. College students, right now, all around us, with just started school, without a local church really targeting them, lostness surrounding us in North Park, lostness surrounding us at work, and the question is, has anyone seen God? Because if we seen God, we'd be willing to go. Has anyone been moved by God to say that the, the lostness of the world is a local church problem? The lostness of the nations is a local church problem. And the strategy isn't to drag you in here and build boats. The strategy is to say, have you seen God? Because that changes everything. That radically redesigns everything. So what does this mean for us practically? I want to give us a couple of things we can do practically as we enter into the series to move forward. So if we're going to be these kind of people to live with this kind of vision, that's going to require something of us, a couple of things. Number one, this will require us to get desperate for God's presence in our lives. Like, you need to start thinking, God's presence is priority one for me. I, I know it's here. He's promised his presence. We're two or more gathered. Like, God's, the spirit lives inside of me. But I'm referencing a tangible understanding of, God, I meet with you. God, I walk this world with a tangible presence in, your, in my life. That, that we change our habits and we start thinking like Moses thought. Like, God, if you're not going with me to the promised land, I don't want to go. I want you, God, you're my utmost priority. I want your presence in my life. Some of us misunderstand the power of just being in God's presence. You, you, you carry unforgiveness, you carry bitterness, you have all this stuff, and then you just go sit in God's presence. Maybe it's at church through worship or through the word, and all of a sudden you leave and you're like, I uh, like forgave that person and don't feel bad about that anymore. And you're like, did you go to counseling? Did you listen to a podcast? What happened? And you're like, I think I met with God. I think God like, like took it away. 
Can we as a church say that is priority one? Like, I want to be in God's presence. I'm going to rearrange my time and my energy to get in God's presence. It's going to be a requirement for us. We're going to talk more about that in future weeks, but let me just put that in front of us. Secondly, this is going to require us to choose obedience over cost. This is going to require us to choose obedience over cost. There is a cost to living as a missionary church. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's going to be a cost to endure. You're going to have to look at the formation that's happening in the world towards you, and we're going to have to live in counter formation away from what the world is offering us, and that will cost. But we've seen something, and so we're willing to pay the cost because obedience matters more to us because of what we've seen. And then lastly, again, we'll talk about this more in future weeks, but let me just put this in front of us. Lastly, this will require us to sacrifice our vision of success. If you look at Isaiah's job description, you go, that's not successful. There's no way. If you look at missionaries throughout church history, there's times where you could say, was that really successful? We have to change our view of success. The vision you have for your life, is it a vision of disciple making? Is it a vision of living sent? Is it a vision of faithfulness and obedience? Because I think of us, oftentimes we are committed to a life that is not successful in the eyes of God and the kingdom of God, but we feel so committed to it, we're not sure how to get out of it. And so as we talk through this series, we're going to have to talk through a vision of success. And we've got to come to a place where we say, Jesus, your vision for my life is the best vision for my life. Your obedience to you is the best vision for my life. For us to say, a sent life is a successful life. A disciple-making life is a successful life. But the only way we're going to be able to walk through this is, again, to recognize what has happened to us so that we have seen God. So in Isaiah chapter 6, there's this phrase where Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted. High and exalted. There's only one other time that that phrase, high and exalted, is used in the Bible. And it's in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah is talking about the future Savior, the suffering servant, the Messiah who is going to come. And Isaiah says there's another one coming. But he won't be high and exalted on a throne. He'll be high and exalted on a cross. And this is, this is the outworking and the futuristic prophetic nature of what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. He's talking about the church and future people experiencing in the new covenant that Christ offers. If there's a God on his throne, high and exalted, and there's an unholy people that can't connect with that God, so the sacrificial system is serving for a moment, but there's one coming who will be high and exalted in a different way. In a staggeringly different way, there will be another one coming who is high and exalted. But it won't be on a throne, it'll be on a cross. And this will be the suffering servant, the, the son of God, the Messiah in the world. And similar to Isaiah... Jesus is going to have a face-to-face -face experience with God. But here's the difference. Jesus is not unclean like Isaiah is. Jesus should have nothing to fear because he is perfect. But in this moment, metaphorically, the one who is high and lifted up on the cross, Jesus says metaphorically to God, woe is me, I'm unclean. And God says, no, you're not. You perfectly lived your life, you've perfectly done everything. And metaphorically, Jesus picks up our filthy rags and our unrighteousness and says to the Father, I hold them in their place. 
But unlike Isaiah, Jesus does not have an angel come to his aid. No, Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice on the altar of God once and for all. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The death Isaiah feared and deserved, he did not get. And the death you and I fear and deserve, we do not get because God loved us enough to send his son in our place. And now we can know God. The God who is high and exalted on the throne is now high and exalted on the cross. So I say to you again, Grace Church, when you see the cost of being pulled in, that he was high and exalted on the cross. He goes from the throne to the cross in our place. When you see the cost of being pulled in, you no longer count the cost of being sent out. And that vision is what we most need. More than value statements, more than mission statements, we need a vision of a God who was high and exalted on a throne, who became high and exalted on a cross to pull you and I in and invite us to get his glory to the ends of the earth. That should move us. That should reprioritize. We should reorient our lives around that. And because God did that for us, he's willing to make an offer to us. But there's no negotiation in this offer. Here's the offer. The only exchange God is willing to make with you is his son's righteousness for your absolute surrender. That's the exchange. I will offer you my son's righteousness in your place. But in response, you surrender to me is the Lord over all. And the only proper response to the gospel is for us to give our entire lives to the purposes of God on earth. And because of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of God's presence anymore. We can come into his presence boldly as a child. We can surrender to him because he is good. It's his kindness that leads us to surrender. And so that leads us as a church to ask the question, how are we doing in this? Is God's presence an intellectual theory or is it a felt reality? And we're going to have a moment where the, the prayer team is going to be up here, the band's going to come and sing, and there's really just a simple ask for you. Do, do you feel like you need a fresh vision of God in your life right now? Do you feel dry? Do you feel like, man, Josh, I, I hear you, man, like it's great, God is holy, I am not. Jesus is merciful, like that's good, but it's still like having a hard time making its way into my bones. Do you need a fresh vision of God? Are you struggling to surrender? Do you hear this and you're like, man, I've heard this before, it's still not quite doing it for me. Here's the hardest part about vision. I can't make you love the ocean. That's out of my jurisdiction. And I certainly don't want to drum us up and give us a bunch of wood and tell us to build ships. So the best I can do is put before you the ocean as beautiful and hope that God will move your heart to see it as such. So as the band sings the next two songs, maybe you make your chair an altar, maybe you stand and sing, maybe you come forward with a prayer partner. But you answer the question, do you need a fresh vision of God? And if so, take advantage of this, of this moment and ask God to give you a fresh vision of himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it challenges us, it moves us, it changes us. God, I pray that in this moment, you would pour out your spirit in a fresh way among your people. 
God, that, that the truth of your gospel would move from our head to our hearts, that many of us would get a vision of who you are. And God, corporately, we, we repent that we have had an inadequate view of you, God. We repent that we have pursued a successful life in the world's eyes, not in your eyes. God, we repent and we corporately say, would you give us a fresh vision of who you are? You've been faithful in the past, God. Be faithful in the future. Move your church, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.